You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Aloha. Aloha. Ha, caught you, didn't I? You're thinking I was going to say good morning, but aloha is going to be our greeting this summer. And aloha means so many things. It means welcome. It means love, actually. And so our series this uh, summer is going to be on the book of 1 John, where we learn about the kipona aloha, the deep love of God that we find deeper than what you can imagine. God has gone to great lengths to love you to the depths of the depths, the height of the heights, how wide and vast it is. And we're going to find that out in the book of 1 John as we walk through it this summer. So we're in kind of a vacation kind of mindset. Now, some of you are already planning, thinking, already almost there on vacation. How many are taking a vacation the next couple of weeks? Yes. John, just like his gospel, writes the most simple, simple, simple language. It's kind of like almost a Dick and Jane reader. Now, I've dated myself with that. (laughs) Do you remember? I was Dick and Jane. I was not McGuffey's readers. Okay? You weren't McGuffey readers? Is anybody doing McGuffey's readers when they were a kid? Is that right? Is that the name of the? That's way back. Yes. Okay. Not quite Civil War back, but way back. (laughs) You did a McGuffey's reader? Boy, you were a throwback, because like you're way younger than me, like half my age. There were schools doing it in the 60s. Oh, kind of as a, okay. Well, anyways, Dick and Jane. So we're kind of reading very simple language, but it's like the most profound. And today we're going to learn that God's deep love is so deep, the kipona aloha is so deep, that God, um, it becomes tangible, graspable, touchable, and what that all means. So let's read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we've also proclaimed to you so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, from just these four verses, we're going to get four points. I know, quite a bit today. We're going to find out what it means that God's deep love has come to us through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And what that means, that Jesus became human, means that, first of all, you are saved by grace, Secondly, you have fellowship with God. Thirdly, love actually really matters. And fourth, you can be filled with joy. Lots to cover, I know. You're saved by grace, which comes up in here where he says that which was from the beginning. Now, some of you may know, um, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, the language is similar And the prologue, those first 18 verses, sound almost eerily, well, what do you expect? A writer's a writer, and John, when he writes this and he writes that, he's going to sound similar. This is how the gospel of John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. 
So if you put those two together, because they sound very similar, you find out that the word, Jesus is called the word. That is logos. He's in a sense the logos, which was a, a profoundly deep term in Greek philosophy, by the way, but we won't get into quite all that. Basically means Jesus is the reason the Son of God is the reason the world is created, and the pattern or the standard or the whole parameters of what it was created to reflect God's glory through his Son, and the love of Father and Son together with the Holy Spirit, and that he becomes the one who holds it all together, and he was before all things. And then the fact that we find in John's Gospel, just in the simple, that he was already from the beginning, that he is life, and that he is has eternal life or is eternal life with the Father, which means Jesus doesn't just kind of give life or grant life or have life. He is life. Is life. That makes all the difference in Christianity. Compared to other religious systems and ideas and philosophies, what a difference it is. In other religions and philosophies, um, you have a founder like Jesus, but a founder who is more or less a prophet or a sage who will talk to you and say, this is the path to follow and will point to that path. This is the way to do it. And here's the method, the eightfold method this way, the 12 steps to this. Uh, but Jesus says, I am the way, not here is the way. I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. He is one with the Father, he is God himself. And so in a simple and a profound way, John already at the beginning saying that Jesus is life, he is that which was from the beginning eternal with the Father, saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. God who's come human, touchable and graspable. Now, Wyatt shared a couple of weeks ago, Wyatt, I think it was, a video with me some Wednesday night, I think, about where a Christian, a young, I think it was on a college campus, where a, a Christian was trying to talk with a Muslim cleric who was um, uh, uh, preaching on a college campus, and the young Christian uh, man, uh, probably a college student, was saying to the Muslim, well, you need to believe in Jesus, and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that you can be forgiven through his death and resurrection. Something, something like that. The only way you're going, and the Muslim cleric looks at him and says, that is the strangest, weirdest kind of God you could ever imagine. Why would a father send his son out to do and say, basically, so if you basically stole something from my store, would I turn to my son and say to you, I'll forgive you, but in order to forgive you, I have to, I'm going to punish my son, and then you get forgiveness. He goes, that makes no sense. My God, he was saying, is all forgiving and all wise and all compassionate. He forgives without having to do any of that stuff. And the college student was speechless. That's the end of the video. Now, <clears throat> I think the Muslim cleric is assuming something about Jesus that isn't quite what the Christian faith is talking about. You see, um, <clears throat> Jesus is not a derivative of God 
as, you know, I have a son, I have a daughter. Um, you know, I don't try to get my son and daughter to do my work necessarily, right? I mean, maybe I do. But <laughs> do you understand? I mean, that, that is not the relationship between father and son at all. Jesus is not a derivative of the father like a biological son is a derivative from the uh, a father. Jesus and the father are one, Jesus says. Jesus is God fully in human form, not a part of God, not a little bit of God, not something of God. The Father doesn't send someone else to do his work. The Trinity is not three different persons negotiating the chores in a household. Okay, you get to do that, and you get to do that, and I'll do this, and wait a minute, and trying to boss. No, they are always, and this is something that the early church has said, always at unity in any of the works. If one is expressing that work, the others are there too. It's not like they're separate. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not like only a part of or a little of or somebody else doing the bad, you know, and don't get the picture of an angry father who's punishing his son. That is not a biblical understanding of what we call the atonement, by the way. And I think not only that, the cleric was also a bit wrong about forgiveness because no one actually simply forgives. You can say, well, God just forgives. Um, nobody does. Nobody does. Um, there's always a cost involved. Okay, so today, let's say I'm out and I, I'm, I'm parked out here in the back and I am a little reckless and I, I, ding, uh, I ding your car. Okay, so Vanna, sorry, oops, ding your car and Vanna's so nice, she looks at me and says, oh, don't worry, you're forgiven. Okay, you realize there's a cost to pay. Now, either she's going to pay it herself or she might live with it and say, I'll just live with the ding, but then she lives with a damaged vehicle. Or she, I say, well, you know, I'll pay for it. And she says, oh, yeah, that's great. Somebody's going to pay for it. The insurance company's going to pay. Somebody's going to pay for it. You don't just get away with that and say, so that's a simple little ding in a car. And there's a payment for that. Think about all the atrocities in this world all the inhumanities, the prides and the rebellions, and everything that you've ever wanted to do in your human heart or flash, just multiply that by billions. Now tell me there's no price to pay, <laughs> right? And the kind of forgiveness that people talk about, and I think a lot of people have this mistaken identity about forgiveness is just letting go, like forgiving and forgetting, letting go, letting whatever, as if forgiveness is just mere acceptance of the way things are. Do you understand what I mean by that? People will say, well, it is what it is. Have you ever heard that phrase? That's not forgiveness. I, I don't mind that because it's acceptance and dealing with reality, but that's really kind of a resignation to the world's broken and that's the way it is. God is not resigned to saying, well, yeah, I guess you guys have done a lot of wars and Lots of problems in this world, and, does he, and he's going to like, well, that's the way. That's not his forgiveness. His forgiveness is not just a sentiment of, well, okay. <laughs> God so loves this world that he wants to straighten this whole world out and renew this world and bring it back to its intended glory, its intended beauty, and its intended destiny. 
And that all happens through his son, Jesus Christ. And that happens through Jesus taking all of this brokenness and violence in this world upon himself and putting it to death with his death and then raising up a whole new way of being and a whole new life and a whole new kingdom. And what's absolutely interesting, um, because I've talked with a couple of uh, Muslim clerics before, is that there are a lot of attributes of God, you know, compassion. There's a thousand different names uh, for God and uh, compassion and gracious and wise and all-powerful and absolute and knowing, and yet they're all abstractions. They're such abstractions that you hope they're true, but you have no promise to hold on to. What you will find in any other world religion is there is not a promise from God to human beings that God makes and says, this is what I will do for you absolutely. What you get is a hope or a wish. And so the one cleric I've talked to, he said even Muhammad, the prophet himself, didn't know what would happen to him at the judgment. In other words, he's going to stand in judgment before God and his good deeds and his bad deeds weigh out and hopefully... Perhaps God will forgive him and give him eternal life. Do you understand what that means? There's no certainty. And it's based on how good you've been. And even if you've been a little better than worse, you know, you're not sure. You're never sure. Even Muhammad himself wasn't sure. So there's no promise. Do you understand the difference between a, having a promise from God? Because basically, somebody asks me, you know, why are you saved? Why do you know you're going to eternal life? It's like, it's not about me. God said it, God promised, God fulfilled the promise in Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about my goodness. That's what's called saved by grace. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he's the one who is sacrificing his life in our place, giving up. It's nothing less than God doing that act. That's grace. How do we know this? 1 John 1.1 1, 1. How he starts, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Isn't that great? He's called the word of life. And notice he says, touched and heard, and our eyes have seen. There's a New Testament scholar, a Greek scholar as well, named um, uh, Bob Yarborough who basically says the variety of verbs correspond here in John 1.1 1, 1, uh, to the variety of witnesses attestation in ancient jurisprudence. In other words, he's given a courtside testimony uh, uh, swearing under an oath, more or less, this is true, this is factual. Jesus was touchable, tangible. We saw him. We saw him die. We saw him raised from the dead. We touched those scars, the side. We were right there with him. This is not something like abstract, well, we hope. We know it's a historical reality. He's saying this is not just a nice story that we've made up or anybody's made up. It really happened. We really saw him. So he's not just a legend or a wish dream or an abstraction of who God is. We see God in concrete Depth of ways coming in our lives. That's why we can say we are saved by grace through the deep love, the tangible love, the touchable love of God. 
And secondly, we have fellowship. He writes in John, uh, 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Simple words. Profound thought here, I think. God is not content to have you obey him. I know that sounds like, oh, obedience is... He's not content to be a controlling factor in your life and telling you what to do and that you follow it. Somebody before whom you might bow or submit or obey. The word for fellowship is koinonia. It's where we get the word communion or common union. It's where we get a partnership idea, participation, fellowship, friendship. God is not content to have you just follow and do stuff. He wants a friendship with you, an intimate relationship with you, a communion with you. He wants to have in common with you. Of all, just think that he says, I want to be with you forever. You're a person I want to be around and hang out with forever. And to be in such a partnership and fellowship that together we get to, in a new creation, you're going to have a lot of fun and celebrate and just enjoy the community of other people and the creativity that you see, any creativity in this world, anything that's good in this world, just wait. Just wait to see what God's going to do with it. Now, there's a little problem with trying to have that kind of intimate, face-to-face fellowship that God wanted friendships with you. You notice there might be a problem with that. Um, Isaiah found out pretty quick. He was in the temple one time in his, uh, in his, uh, as a prophet. Isaiah 6, you can look it up sometime. And he's in the temple. He's just going to worship normally, and then he actually sees the Lord, it says. And he doesn't really see the Lord. He only sees the train of his robe that filled the temple. So he kind of looks, but it's like, and that itself sends him into utter, like, shock. And he says, woe is me. Personally, I think I would have used different words for that. Much more colorful. Holy, you know. And because he said, I'm ruined. I'm dissolved. I'm falling apart. You know, there's one point, only one point that I can think of really in the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark movie that's sort of close to maybe. And that's that towards the end where it's like nobody can look into the face of God and live and, you know, will be crispy critters. Now, uh, here's the problem, though. Indiana Jones and his... uh, Uh, female counterpart, just closing your eyes ain't going to save (laughs) you. You know, it's like a little magic here. No, that's not the way it works. For us to have a communion with God and not be annihilated by God's holiness and otherness and omniscience and omnipotence and just totally differentness because of my rebellion and and, and it's not about his infiniteness and my finiteness, but about his perfection and my complete antipathy towards that. So in order for me to have any close fellowship with him, God had to go to great lengths to still be fully God and come to us in such a way that we could actually handle him, touch him. 
That's the miracle of the deep love of God that he went to such great lengths. So there's a uh, early church father named Gregory of Nazareth. I always get this name wrong. Uh, Nazanians, um, this one town that um, basically Gregory of Nazianzus, let's see. <laughs> what a town, okay? He comments on just the shocking love of God and the depth of it. And I think this is uh, worth uh, kind of sharing. He's, he wrote this, he hungered and yet fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he proclaimed, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was tired, yet he gave rest of the weary and the burdened. He prayed, yet he hears prayers. He weeps, yet he puts an end to weeping. He asks where Lazarus is laid, he was man, yet he raises Lazarus, he was God. He is sold, and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver, yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. A sheep he is led to the slaughter, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, yet by the tree of life he restores us. Yes, he saves even a thief crucified with him. He is given vinegar to drink, gall to eat, and who is he? Why? One who turned water into wine, who took away the taste of bitterness, who is all sweetness and desire. He surrenders his life, yet he has power to take it again. He dies, but he vivifies by death destroys death. Wow. Jesus is no avatar. He's no hologram. He's no semi-appearance of who God is. And John, in this first letter, is going to talk about that much more profoundly because he saw people coming into the church to make Jesus just kind of an idea, a concept, a model to follow, a way to gain, quote, success or whatever. And he calls those um, the antichrists, that is, trying to replace the real Jesus with some fake Jesus. John says you can touch him, you can hear him, you can see him. The one who created the universe was right here, and we saw his glory, the real glory, the real love, the real character of God at his heart. So that means you can have real fellowship. That's what we were talking about, not some fake fellowship, and that's, that a Christian church is not about ideas and concepts and abstract things that you just believe and then everything's okay. It's about the tangible, touchable, seeable, visible, actual, real fellowship, heart-to-heart -heart stuff that we've got going on here at Thrive and we need to increase. Now, another way of saying that is our third point, love really matters. You might go like, well, the word doesn't, it'll come up so often in the gospel, in, in this uh, letter of 1 John, okay? And it really does come up here because I don't know if you keep up with the latest, I don't really keep up with the latest trends, philosophical or cultural necessarily, but there has been a trend um, I, I, I will call scientific reductionism. Okay, everything is reduced to a formula. Everything is reduced to chemical reactions or physical laws. You know, it's just a bunch of stuff. It's just matter. That, that's the only thing that matters is matter. That's all that there is. And it basically means that everything that you've experienced is just a chemical reaction. Your pheromones, your hormones, your neurons shooting off, whatever. But it's just a bunch of processes, right? So... Um, in fact, um, Francis Crick, one of the two major scientists who uh, discovered the double helix DNA molecule, he wrote this in his book, The Astonishing Universe. 
You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You are nothing but a pack of neurons. I think it was um, Carl Sagan that called us basically an unusual bag of chemicals, okay? I mean, and um, when you look at it, the chemicals are things like, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, uh, carbon, and then an assortment of little this and that as well. And where did that all come from? Well, from the Big Bang explosion, from the star. So you're just a bunch of stardust, okay? It's all just chemical reactions. That basically means then that anything you feel, anything that happens, anything that you do doesn't really matter that much. It's just, it's just what's shooting off in your brain, you know, or in your life. It's just what you're thinking. A lot of people are always looking for a scientific explanation to everything of why we do what we do. And I understand that. And yet, I'll tell you this, no one lives like that's all that matters. They know intuitively that relationships matter, that love matters. That is not just. They can't, re they can't really live consistently that everything is just a bunch of physical or chemical properties. Now, I love science. Love it. We've, but I also see there's something beyond science or before science. I think that's another way of viewing it. And this is what John does in both his gospel and in this letter. In his gospel, he writes, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him. So John is saying that there's not one atom that exists in this material world. Before there were any laws of physics or chemistry, before all the matter that we see, there was God who was also with the word, the son. And John is saying that before everything, before time existed, everything, there was a relationship of father, son, and spirit in perfect unity and therefore in love. Now, other religions will say that the divine behind everything is an impersonal force, kind of like Star Wars, or is a, quote, unipersonal singular being, like certain monotheistic faiths, and therefore God creates out of that, or the universe comes out of these, kind of this spiritualness or whatever. Those are what religions will say, but then, even if they believe in a personal, unitary God, when he creates, love only comes after because there was nothing to love. But Christianity says love matters because love has always been. It is the reason why God created, because he already loved. It is the way God created. It is why God created. It is where he is heading everything. Love matters more than anything else. Now, you might be going like, boy, in this world, I'm not sure what matters right now because it's quite chaotic and messy. And you might look at your own lives and go like, man, I just don't see any purpose or end goal going on. It's just all one question after the other, and we can't figure it out. And I think that's where um, we see right now what we see is kind of the construction zone, okay? 
Kind of, that's the way a reformer, uh, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther put it 500 years ago. He wrote this, this world serves for God as a preparation and a scaffolding for the other world. As a rich Lord must have a lot of scaffolding for his house, but then tears the scaffolding down as soon as the house is finished. So God has made the whole world as a preparation for the other, where finally everything will proceed according to the will and power of God. So right now we're in the mess, in the construction, and the scaffolding's up. We can't really see what's going on. We can't tell what's going on in our lives. And yet, love matters. And that's where it's headed. And that's what it's about. It is both the reason it began, what God is doing in the middle, and the destination of where we're going. And finally, that means, I think, as John says here, you can be filled with joy. In 1 John 1.4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy. What is it? What is it? You realize joy is God's disposition toward his delight in you, his delight over what he has made. His joy, not just, he doesn't, he likes you. He doesn't just love you. He delights in you. You know, there's a difference between sometimes um, with your own children or with others, you feel like you have to love them, right? And then there are people that you like to love or like to be around. God has the disposition of joy that he likes being around you, delighting in you, seeing you prosper and do well. Isn't that amazing? So joy is his disposition, his, his whole way of seeing this world beyond his, just his love um, and, I, and where he wants everything to head. So, uh, so Jesus tells three different stories in Luke chapter 15 about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And do you know how all three of them end? With this phrase, rejoice with me. The end of this world, the end that is the goal, where it's headed is not to just oh, disaster, which most people think these days. Have you ever noticed how they're like, oh my gosh, it's going to hell in a handbag. It's going to end in joy. It's going to end with a celebration. It's going to end with a party. We can be filled with that joy. Uh, S.D. Gordon says it this way, joy is distinctively a Christian word and a Christian thing. It is the reverse of happiness. Happiness is the result of what happens of an agreeable sort. Joy has its spring deep down, and that spring never runs dry, no matter what happens. Only Jesus gives that joy. He had joy, singing its music within, even under the shadow of the cross, because he knows where things are going. He knows how it's going to turn out. There's something deep within, beyond the surface circumstances. Lisa and I, and uh, we uh, used to live way back when in California in the Central Valley in a town called Visalia. It's, uh, the Central Valley is a, an amazing place where it's one of the agricultural, um, just produces everything. But um, do you know, um, its rainfall is extremely low. I don't know if you realize, uh, so we can get more rain on a weekend here than they get in a year. 12 inches 
is all we got over a 365 on average. There were some years with less, like we had some with seven to 10 inches, and others with up to 20. And, but the valley, 400 feet above sea level, the Sierra Nevada mountains to the east of us to 14,000 feet above sea level could have up to 50 feet of snow over the course of the winter, and it would melt and slowly fill all these canals and irrigation ditches and rivers all summer long. And Visalia was known for its oak trees. They were called the Visalia Oaks, a minor league baseball team. And they were these giant oak trees that almost always grew right next to an irrigation ditch or canal. Why? When, it's a, when you don't get a drop of rain or a cloud in the sky from May through October, seriously, not one. And it can get up to 100 plus degrees during every day with 10% humidity. The deep roots into next to that uh, irrigation ditch that sucked in the life kept that tree alive and growing and thriving. The um, Psalms start with Psalm 1 that talks about a person who is like a tree whose deep roots go and he prospers without leaves withering in a very similar climate in Israel to that of the Central Valley of California. Joy is that deep rootedness into God's promise and God's direction and God's future that we have. Sam Storm says it this way, joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, it's the presence of God. Now, if you didn't feel this this last year, I did. I felt very uprooted. That is, disconnected. I felt like I was almost like a potted plant <laughs> in isolation. And once in a while, I got water, but sometimes it's like, ugh. The isolation, I am asking you, calling on you to consider, now it's time to get deeply rooted again in the Christian fellowship and the joy that we can have, being connected together in hangouts like we'll have next Sunday, starting to enjoy the fellowship that we can have again. You know, the Christian life is not something to be lived in isolation. It was never intended at that. In fact, it's a community thing all the way through. There was a you can count hundreds of love one another's and pray for one another's and serve one another's and give preference to one another's in the New Testament. It's about being together. It's not being alone. It's about being rooted deeply into the love of God and being in community. I think that's why Jesus came. And I think that's what this letter is going to really encourage us to do. The fact that Jesus, the deep love of God, the kipona aloha of God, comes to us in human form in the person of Jesus Christ so that we are saved by grace, that we have fellowship with God and each other, that love really matters, and that you can be filled with joy. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you this day for this letter, for this time where we can kind of relax and we can soak in your love and start sharing it and expressing it to others to greet one another with that, that deep love that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for this letter and just these four verses and the profound, <laughs> the profound uh, depth of what John is sharing with simple words, Lord. 
Help us to live, Lord, so that we understand your grace so deeply that that's, that's our default, that we are in fellowship with each other and with you, that we understand how love really matters, and love is the thing <laughs> that's going to last. You know, faith, hope, and love may be here, but the greatest is love, Lord, and that we can live in joy now as we look forward to a joyous future with you, Lord, in a whole new renewed creation as you intend. We pray that you'd bless all those who have been with us online this day and those who are here right now, Lord, with that deep understanding of your love. We also lift up to you, Lord, those who are in need, who need a tangible, touchable uh, fellowship. We pray that you'd be with um, the Rodriguez family as Chris is still hospitalized, that you'd be with Jamie, Lord God, that we'd be able to wrap our arms around him and support him and lift up him and Chris and uh, Hillary and Courtney and uh, uh, Shelby and um, Jennifer, Lord, the four girls in, uh, who are all going uh, through this journey with their mom and with uh, uh, Jamie with his wife. We pray, Lord, your healing be upon her, that she grows in her faith toward you, that she is at peace with you, that you, Lord, are glorified in her. We lift up to you Bill Watson as he is still struggling with um, recovering fully right now at home. And for everyone who may be going through difficult times, that we can be a church that shows tangibly, actually, and really the deep love that you have for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for these things. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that in a few moments, you're going to become tangibly part with us as we receive communion this morning. Prepare our hearts to receive you, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Renew us and lead us according to your will so that uh, we receive it for all you give it for, Lord, to have common union with us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.